I was kind of thinking about my life as a trauma patient and how I thought about, you know, how I overcame my trauma. And I started thinking, well, maybe there's a way that I can talk to trauma patients about what they're going through and help them to make positive changes and then also help them to not progress to have acute stress or PTSD. Welcome to Unloading, a podcast created to share community solutions for gun violence in America. Unloading was created by Gun Violence Solutions of the American Medical Women's Association. I'm Kat, a pre-medical student in Chicago and assistant director of the American Medical Women's Association. And I'm Anorvi, a fourth-year medical student based in New York. And we're here to show you how individuals across America are responding to gun violence in their communities. Today we're going to move from the physical trauma to the emotional trauma and how a physician deals with both. The term second victim was originally coined by Dr. Albert Wu of John Hopkins in 2000 to describe healthcare providers that are traumatized in the workplace. Although this term has been criticized for being insensitive to the actual crime victim, I believe there's something there. Studies have shown that about 43% of physicians suffer from anxiety, depression, or PTSD after experiencing an adverse patient event, such as treating a gunshot victim. Gun violence not only affects those shot and their family and friends, but also healthcare providers who work to save their lives. With us today, we have Dr. Chris Cassiter. She is a trauma surgeon at Wellstar Trauma Acute Care Surgery in Marietta, Georgia, and is passionate about addressing the PTSD epidemic in healthcare providers. Dr. Cassiter, it's great to have you with us today. Just to start off, can you tell our audience a little about what led you to your path of becoming a trauma surgeon today? Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be here, by the way. Essentially, I am a little bit of an what they call non-traditional student, which I think is just kind of a nice way of saying older or having like a varied path. I um, worked in business when I was younger, and then I was attacked when I was in my mental late 20s. And so I had a bunch of injuries. Um, at the time, I was like in between jobs, so I actually didn't have insurance And so I had a lot of experiences as a uninsured uh, trauma patient. And essentially that's what made me decide I was going to try to go back to school to go to medical school. I knew that I wanted to try to take care of trauma patients. And I, I didn't entirely at that time know what that meant. And then it took me a number of years to kind of get better and everything. But then after that, I went back to school and, and kind of proceeded on with my medical training and then ended up, you know, initially, I thought that I could probably take care of trauma patients. I think there's different ways that we see them. There's obviously the psychiatric side, you know, patients that have suffered from trauma, suffer from like depression, PTSD and stuff. And so I thought I might be able to help them in that way. Um, but then when I was doing my rotations, I really um, felt like by the time somebody is going to a psychiatrist with symptoms of PTSD or depression, that's kind of later on in the pathway, I really wanted to be able to be more at the front line, helping people when they first come through the door to either not progress to PTSD or acute stress. And so ended up um, going into surgery and obviously becoming a trauma surgeon. One of my you know, um, main interests is in helping patients to kind of um, overcome their injuries in a, as much of a positive way as possible. That's amazing. Thank you for that introduction. It's amazing that you came from a different background altogether and took your your personal experience and turned it into your career. That's amazing. 
When did you first become aware of the psychological effects of treating trauma patients on a regular basis? Early on in my medical training, I was aware that taking care of patients is hard for us as providers. I wasn't aware of the term second victim syndrome, but I definitely knew that, you know, taking care of patients that are very sick and especially trauma patients who have severe injuries that are traumatic would be even harder. It wasn't until I was really in residency that I started to really understand more about PTSD and ASD, which is acute stress disorder as it applies like kind of to patients. And then also as it applies to like providers and so like second victim syndrome. And so that's when I really started to become interested in um, figuring out how we can manage those things, like both in our patients and in ourselves. And I guess from the physician perspective, how does having poor mental health as a physician, how does that affect patient outcomes? I mean, all of the data says that um, if providers are, you know, have second victim syndrome and have PTSD or depression, that, um, that it affects outcomes with patients. And it kind of makes intuitive sense. If you're having PTSD or depression, you're almost like psychiatrically numbed. And so your ability to actually empathize with and care for, and even, you know, sometimes make the best decisions for patients is going to be slightly impaired. And so it's really imperative that we kind of identify the risk factors. And then also when we're, you know, starting to feel different things so that we can try to address it before it gets any further. And Have your, I guess, like the previous institutions that you worked at, or even the one that you're currently working at, do they have anything in place to kind of mitigate PTSD symptoms in their healthcare providers? Um, You know, I think that everywhere that I have been has stuff as far as there's ways that you can reach out if you feel like you um, are having any sort of, you know, problems with second victim syndrome or anything like that, you can do like a non, you know, reach out anonymously and get assistance. I think that, you know, the problem is a lot of times people feel like they don't want to be stigmatized. And so even if it's like an anonymous type system, sometimes people don't feel comfortable doing that. So at um, when I was in residency and also in fellowship, we would have, you know, frequently like debriefing type sessions where after like a really bad trauma for like anyone that was involved in that to talk about what happened and help people to kind of work through what emotions they were having and stuff. And then also we would talk about kind of second victim syndrome. And then, you know, a lot of that kind of relies in peer recognition. So, you know, in myself seeing that my coworker feels like they're going through a lot I can go up to them and try to talk to them about that or ask them if they want some help, like being referred somewhere. And then, you know, that can kind of help them to maybe feel like it's a safer environment. And so you have, if you have programs like that within the system, it kind of builds multiple layers of protection for providers where they can feel like they can get help if they need it. Where I'm at currently, we don't really do um, like debriefs. There isn't a lot of second victim syndrome training, um, but there are ways that you can, you know, reach out and anonymously get help. And it is something that I've actually been talking to them about as far as, you know, um, needing to try to figure out how to implement. So it's on the horizon. 
I mean, you talk about the stigma and how that's, as a physician, that's the first barrier to kind of even reaching out and getting help. Are there any permanent solutions that you see that could be implemented in the healthcare system in general that would improve the mental health of physicians? I don't think that there's like one hard and fast thing. I think, you know, the, the main thing is increasing conversations around the fact that these are things that people experience and that it's okay to feel that way. That is what helps people to feel like they can come forward if they have a problem. And also it helps for pe- for people to feel like they can talk to someone and say, I think you're having a problem and, you know, and help them to get help. Along with that, what you have to do is have the resources in place in order to give people the help that they need. So I think part of it is just increasing the conversation so that it becomes something that is talkable and understandable and relatable and okay. And then the second thing is, you know, then how are you going to actually help people if they're experiencing it? I think that's really important. I, I especially just as a medical student, I feel like my first, like the first few traumas that I saw in the ED, they were just very, I feel like they stuck with me and we never got any sort of debriefing or anything like that. But I feel like having a conversation would have definitely helped. Are there any physician organizations or support groups that you go to outside of the hospital, outside of your work that you can have these conversations with and have this extra layer of support? Not now, I don't. There was a like humanism and medicine like work group that we had in my residency that was totally optional, but basically you could go to and basically talk about any cases or things that you had happened that were like upsetting to you. And it was like a, you know, informal and privileged, meaning anything that was said there was not taken beyond the walls of that group place that people could talk about things. I didn't have anything like that in fellowship and I don't, I don't have that here, but I do have like female surgeons, for example, who I get together with, or also non-female surgeons. I have, you know, groups of surgical friends and non-surgical friends and stuff who I get together with for wellness. And I think that overall wellness is also a very good way to combat any provider fatigue, but that's not like a formal setting, obviously. I'm going to shift gears, talk with you about PTSD in patients. So how does the emergency response team at your hospital work to prevent PTSD in patients who are admitted as trauma patients? At least where I am right now, and also at a lot of hospitals, I don't, there's not a lot of, I mean, this is something that is really Um, up and coming in the literature and also within trauma organizations like the AAST, which is the American Association um, or Surgery and Trauma, are really talking a lot about PTSD and trauma patients and how can we identify and start helping to treat patients as they come through. But at least my experience from talking to a lot of other surgeons and stuff is that it's something that we're all kind of talking about across our institutions and things are just kind of starting to happen. It's funny because, you know, and I'm also kind of answering your question in a roundabout way. Sorry, I apologize. But, you know, when I first was in medical school and then like going towards residency and I would talk about how I was really interested in PTSD and trauma patients, people would literally look at me like I had a third head because, you know, for the most part, a lot of surgical care is how are we, you know, managing 
the surgery of XYZ pathology, you know, what's the best way that we can treat patients surgically. And, and I a hundred percent agree. That's very important. But my whole point has always been that managing also their mental health, especially around their traumas is important. And we know that from, um, there's a ton of data across various you know, disciplines that talks about PTSD and trauma patients and how their overall outcomes are substantially worse from both a morbidity and mortality perspective if their mental health is not actually managed. So if we only manage their body and their illnesses and their, um, and their injuries, we're not actually managing them the best way that we can. So I say all that to say that it's very important to identify these people. And so, you know, what I'm working on now is, is kind of trying to figure out if there's ways that we can capture certain people that might be more at risk. And then all the alternative is kind of everyone that comes in with a trauma, because even if people have increased risk, it doesn't mean you don't have a whole bunch of other people that are at risk. And so if you kind of um, capture all of these patients when they come in, there's ways that you can administer either like, you know, questionnaires and do follow-up where you're making sure they're not progressing forward with having symptoms of PTSD. And if they do, you can refer them to treatment. Well, thank you for, for leading the charge. And it's very important. Can you tell us about the screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, so SBIRT, that was originally used to deter substance abuse, but is now being investigated as a way to reduce PTSD symptoms in violence victims or in trauma patients? Yeah, I think there's some, you know, limited people have, who've been thinking about, you know, using these SBIRTs, which like you said, are, were originally used to identify and treat kind of like substance abuse. And the whole idea is that you have these teachable moments, you know, you have somebody who's in the hospital with like acute, like, you know, alcohol withdrawal. This is the time where you can talk to them about their drinking and how it has a negative effect and basically have an opportunity to maybe turn, turn it around and have them decrease drinking. And so on a similar vein, um, you know, the time that we can talk to patients is, you know, and I kind of touched about on this before, you know, when patients come in with their trauma, the time when they're there is the time where we can talk to them about, is there anything that they can change in their life? that might, you know, help them so that they can a move forward in a more positive way. And then also we can use an SBIRT format to, to kind of identify what symptoms they have and then follow up later to see if they're like progressing in a negative way. So, so the SBIRT is uh, for PTSD is really good for trying to identify ways that they can make positive change so that they don't progress forward towards PTSD symptoms, but it's only really, you know, very well utilized if you have follow-up to make sure that patients are not actually progressing in a negative way. Is this something that your institution is utilizing right now? So I developed novel SBIRT for PTSD. It was kind of based on history of it was that um, I was kind of thinking about my life as a trauma patient and how I thought about, you know, how I overcame my trauma. And I started thinking, well, maybe there's a way that I can talk to trauma patients about what they're going through and help them to make positive changes and then also help them to not progress to have acute stress or PTSD. And so 
So over the years developed it into an SBIRT. And so part of the whole thing about an SBIRT, the first word is short, you know, so it's basically just a few questions, identifying what their support system is, like how they will overcome different things when they leave the hospital. And then, you know, what they will do if they are having problems, like things like that. And we started um, administering it. This was actually at Grady, just recently got published as we completed the feasibility part of our study. And so I'm in the process of working to incorporate that here um, at Wellstar Kennestone, because one of the things that we really want to be able to do is be identifying and capturing patients when they come in with traumas to help them to not progress on to PTSD. We just read an article published by Jacoby et al. in the journal Social Science and Medicine, discussing the intersection of healthcare, law enforcement, and race in the setting of trauma surgery. We pulled a quote from the paper that says, patients may interpret police interactions before and during hospitalization as inappropriate and dehumanizing. The presence of police during trauma care activities can also blur the line between healthcare and law enforcement practitioners. How do we change this experience for trauma patients? Yeah, I mean, we definitely experience having to take care of trauma patients and also having um, police that are there. I think that can be for really two different reasons. Like one, you have somebody that's been injured and there is a police investigation involving like why they were injured. And then two, someone is injured, but they're a suspect in some way. And so they're there because they are now putting this person under arrest and want to make sure that they, so they're watching them um, while they're in the hospital. I think that either way, as trauma physicians, we have kind of an obligation, which is to our patients. And, you know, our obligation is not to law enforcement. And when we're taking care of our patients, we have to make sure that they're comfortable. And that includes, you know, not having law enforcement be like present while we're taking their clothes off and and examining them and doing things like that. Obviously, many times, like I said, law enforcement is there because they want to be able to talk to the person as soon as they possibly can to try to figure out who injured them. And so it's fine to allow them to do that, but it cannot delay or defer or take the place of anything that we need to do. They can do that after everything else is done. And we all just have to make sure to tell them that that's what it is. For the other case where it's somebody that like might be under arrest or something, it's really important to make sure that they understand, you know, these patients need to be not handcuffed. Like they don't need to be standing there, you know, watching them. I mean, I've had times where they say, well, we can't take the handcuffs off and stuff. And it's like, um, you know, yes, you do, you know, cause we have to be able to like roll people and examine them. And, and so you just have to make sure to put your foot down and say that we're taking care of this patient. And like, part of that is like saying that so that patients hear us say it. So we, they know that we care about them and we care about their lives and we're here to take care of them. Do you think this, um, the interaction with the police officer while they're, while they're in a very terrifying moment of their life, they don't know what their outcome is going to be. They're in a hospital, very uncomfortable setting. Do you think this interaction with the police while they're trying to get care, do you think it could have negative psychological effects on the trauma patient? I'm not, I'm, I'm honestly not really sure. I mean, I think that any experience that patients have in the hospital can have a negative psychological effect. I mean, that's everything from the moment that they arrive to the door and they have a ton of people circling around them and, and, you know, taking their clothes off and, you know, pushing on them and acting like they're, 
not even there because they're just examining them. You know, so I think the main thing is trying to make sure that throughout the process of, of when trauma patients come in, that we are making sure to speak to them and humanize them and let them know that we're taking care of them. So would the presence of police worsen that? I mean, I think, sure, you know, it probably could, but if your underlying motivation and thing is to take care of patients and make sure they know that that's happening. And that includes not letting the police, because they don't need to be there during those things. And so if if that's happening, then in theory, it shouldn't, it shouldn't affect them. I appreciate your nuanced response. Just out of curiosity, so obviously we're, you know, our podcast is focused on gun violence solutions. As a physician, do you think, or did you ever receive training handling gun violence victims prior to, you know, your residency or fellowship, like maybe in medical school? You mean specifically like how to handle victims of gun violence? Yeah. No. um, Yeah, no. I think, you know, all you know, everything, any training that I've ever gotten about managing trauma patients really has to do with managing them just overall. I think there's different things that happen with victims of gun violence. And so I think over the years, you just kind of come to have a better understanding about exactly, you know, what is traumatic about that for them and try to help them to kind of navigate it in the best way. But yeah, I don't know of any like specific training that is for providers that take care of victims of gun violence. I feel like if I did have that training, you know, in my medical school, it might help me if I go to a different location for residency and beyond when I do encounter these patients. And I don't know, I just wanted to know your perspective. Like, do you think that's something that's important to have, you know, earlier on in training rather than later, even if you're not going into trauma, you're going into, you know pediatrics or neurology? I mean, I definitely think so. I mean, there's so many people that are victims of gun violence or have someone in their family who is. And so I think if that is incorporated into medical education, it's, um, it's important because, you know, like you said, whether you're talking about, you don't have to be going into trauma surgery, you can be going into, you know, psychiatry, internal medicine, you know, whatever. But then if that comes up with your patient, you kind of know what things to either like ask them about or look for. Thank you for meeting with us. I really do thank you for having me. This like is the subject that is very, very close to my heart. Um, So I'm always happy to talk about it, discuss it. I'm interested in all research about it. You know, I think it's so important to identify both in patients and in providers. And so, as I said, like increasing the dialogue about it is the main thing that will help over time because that increases awareness. And I think that's what we need in order to kind of move forward with helping people. 